0: Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you might give us understanding and wisdom into your word. We pray, O oh God, that your word would break into our hearts, that your voice would be stronger and more powerful than all of the other voices around us and that your voice would shape and form us to be your people in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So we are now on week six in quarantine, and I wonder how you all are doing. I saw this online this last week. It's from a man named John Howigan, and he describes how he's experiencing quarantine. I wonder if any of you can relate to this. He says, I I used to spin that toilet paper like I was on the wheel of fortune. Now I turn it like I am cracking a safe. I need to practice social distancing from the refrigerator. Still haven't decided where to go to church tomorrow, the living room or the bedroom. I'm so excited. It's time to take out the garbage. What should I wear? And then finally, day 16 of homeschool. My child just said she hopes she doesn't have the same teacher again next year. I'm offended. (laughs) Well, I hope you all are doing well in quarantine. We began a new series last week entitled Centered in the Chaos. And the question that we're asking is, how can we, in the midst of these very disruptive and chaotic times, how can we center ourselves, our hearts, our lives in God? Now, I, I, I believe that God is not the author of our pain and of the chaos that we're in right now, but I do believe that God can use pain. He can use difficulty and trials and suffering in order to do work in our life. And I believe that one of the things that God wants to do in your life and mine during this season is he wants to meet us where we're at and drive us down deeper in our relationship with him. And so as a guide for centering our own lives into a deeper relationship with God, we began a new series last week in the book of Psalms. And so this morning, we're going to continue on in that series, and we're going to begin uh, by looking at Psalm 1, so the very first Psalm uh, in the entire catalog. And it's interesting because we said last week that the book of Psalms is a guide for our praying. It's a guide for how we engage with God. But what's fascinating is that the Psalter opens up not with a psalm about prayer, but with a meditation on the art of meditation. And so this morning, we're going to be talking together about scripture meditation and how this practice is so essential for centering our own hearts and lives in God. And so we're going to be talking together about meditation underneath four headings. I've got four points for you today. Little gift for those in quarantine. Uh, Normally, I have three points, but today we've got a bonus point, uh, four points, And so, number one, we're going to talk about the practice of meditation, Uh, secondly, the partner of meditation, thirdly, the problem with meditation, and then finally, the promise of meditation. So, the practice, the partner, the problem, and then the promise. And so, let's start by talking about the the practice of meditation. So there is a kind of meditation that's common in Eastern religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, and it's a meditation that can be helpful, but primarily the goal is to empty your mind of clutter. And so that's kind of Eastern meditation. But what we encounter here in Psalm 1 is a different kind of meditation. Uh, This is the kind of meditation that was born not in the East, but in the ancient Near East. And it's described in this way in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one who walks not in step with the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So here we are introduced to a distinct kind of meditation that was birthed in the ancient Near East about 3,000 years ago. It's a form of meditation that was practiced by Jesus. And then that ultimately spread throughout the, the known world over the last 2,000 years. And has been practiced by wise sages all over the world in different languages, and different peoples, and different tongues. Now, what is this distinct kind of meditation we're introduced to here? Well, it's a, it's a meditation on scripture. And so as where Eastern meditation is more centered on emptying the mind. The Near Eastern form of meditation we're introduced to here is about filling the mind. And what do you fill the mind with? Well, according to the text, it is with the law of the Lord. And notice what it says back in the text. It says that on God's law, we meditate day and night. Now, it's interesting, this word meditation is the word haggah, which can be translated as murmur or kind of mutter. And so it, it, was, what in, it was what one did in a culture where there was no silent reading. You would murmur, you would mutter uh, the text of Scripture out loud. And of course, this was an oral culture. And so in an oral, oral culture, you would commit Scripture to memory and so you can imagine these wise sages who are teaching us the way, they're going in the morning and in the evening and they're calling to mind these passages of Scripture. They're quoting them, they're muttering them, they're murmuring them, and then they're asking themselves questions about them. What does this text mean, I wonder? And how does this apply to me? And they're, they're, they're deeply reflecting upon and questioning the text of Scripture. I remember hearing an old Bible teacher named Warren Wiersbe say, If you don't talk to your Bible, your Bible's not going to talk to you. And there's a great value in asking your Bible questions. You know, you encounter something like, what on earth does this mean? What does this mean for me? How should this apply to my life? What does this reveal to me about God? And when you start asking questions, when you start murmuring and muttering about the Scripture, you find riches in that practice. And so this is a meditation that involves filling your mind with scripture and meditating on it day and night. But it's not just this daily reflective meditation on scripture. It's also a delightful meditation. You notice what it says back in the text. He says, the one who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And it's interesting, when you get a little bit further into the Psalms, it describes this delightful reading of Scripture in all kinds of different ways. There's one text in Psalm 19 that uh, puts it like this. It says, The rules of Yahweh, the, the, the law of God, the word of God, is true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So, in the ancient world, I mean, they didn't have ice cream and they didn't have, you know, uh, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. I mean, the sweetest kind of dessert, the most desirable, indulgent kind of dessert they knew was honey from the honeycomb. And what the the writer, what the poet is saying is that Bible meditation for him became like the sweetness of the best indulgent dessert. It was rich, it was enjoyable, it was delightful to him. And so do you see what he's talking about here? He's talking about this regular discipline, reflection, and contemplation, and recitation, and questioning, giving, and it's delighting him. He's thinking about it, and he's going into it, and but it goes even further than that because he's not simply just thinking about the text and and delighting in the text. He's considering what it looks like to live out this text in the practice of his life. You notice in our text, uh, the, the one who meditates on scripture is set in contrast to the person who walks in the way of the wicked and the counsel of the ungodly and who seats in the seat of the scornful. That's a way of life. And here, this person who is delighting in God's word is seeking to practice an alternate way, a counter formation into a different way of life that is more radical and more sacrificial and more life-giving. And so this is what the psalmist is talking about here, this regular, habitual, giving yourselves over to day and night reflection on the scripture so that it actually becomes something that's delightful to you and that you're set with the aim of, of seeking to practice this alternate way of life in your own life. Now, of course, Jesus is the example par excellence as the person who delights in God's law and who meditates on it day and night. You know, there, there are these interesting little vignettes in the gospels, in the biographies of Jesus, where, where Jesus is up teaching the crowds and he says, you have heard it was said, And then he drops some surprising reinterpretation of the Old Testament text that surely comes out of a deep, reflective, meditative embrace of the scriptures. Or you'll find Jesus and uh, he's out, you know, in the fields with his disciples and they're plucking grains on the Sabbath and the mean-spirited religious leaders come and say, how dare you pluck grains on the Sabbath? And Jesus looks at them and he says, don't you know your Bible? Have you not read what David did? And then he drops this little gem. He says, Sabbath was not made for, or man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man, it was made to give humanity rest and refreshment. And surely that comes out of a deep, ongoing, habitual reflection that Jesus gave to the scriptures. And then there's this other great text where Jesus is uh, eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, all the wrong kind of people. And the religious leaders, again, they come and they say, what are you doing? And Jesus comes back on them and he says, go back to your Bible and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Surely Jesus had spent hours reflecting upon these old prophetic words, these old teachings in the Old Testament. It, had, it was one of his geniuses. And Jesus said this, he says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. In other words, if Jesus was one who delighted in scripture and meditated on scripture, then you and I who might want to apprentice ourselves to learn how to live a way of life from Jesus need to learn how to become one who delights in and who meditates upon and, and reflects upon and gives ourselves over to obedience to the Bible. And so, number one, we see something here about the practice of meditation, this distinct, unique practice that was birthed in the Near East. But secondly, I want you now just to consider with me the partner in meditation. You know, last week we pointed out that the Psalms is a collection of ancient, poetic Hebrew prayers. And so this is a prayer book. And we said at least one of the reasons why it was given to us is so that we might learn how to pray. But isn't it interesting that this great prayer book doesn't open with a psalm about prayer. Instead, it opens with a meditation on meditation, with an implicit exhortation to be a person who sits with God's word. Now, why on earth does the psalms begin this way? And I think at least it's for this reason. It's showing us that the doorway, the, the very entry point into a life of prayer is a deep life of reflective meditation on God's word to us. You know, we could put it like this. A while back, I, I saw the musical School of Rock with my family. And there's this great moving scene in the musical where uh, the, the, the young cast of children, who are all students in this school, get up and they sing this song to their parents And the chorus of the song goes like this. The the kids are crying out to their parents, almost in anguish, and they say, I've got so much to say if only you would listen. I've got so much to say if only you would listen. And of course, in the scene, the parents are on their devices and they're distracted with work or whatever, and the children are just begging to be heard by their parents And there's a sense in which in the Psalter, uh, the people of God are crying out to God, God, hear my prayer. I've got so much to say, oh God, if only you would listen. But it's almost as if the entry point in the Psalm says, look, you need to know something before you ever call out to God and ask him to listen. God has called to you. He has spoken to you. He has initiated with you. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. The text that teaches us to pray doesn't begin with prayer. We are not ready. We are wrapped up in ourselves. We're knocked about by the world. Psalm 1 is the pre-prayer getting us ready to pray. And this can get real practical. You know, um, this is a a little illustration that I created just to kind of capture the dynamic that exists in our life with God. On the one hand, God comes to us in his word and that's God's speech to us with which we hear when we meditate and reflect on his word. But then we respond to God's speech to us with our speech back to God and that's prayer. And I would encourage you, as you engage in your own life with God and you seek to ground and center your life with God, begin each day with reflective meditation on Scripture that leads you into your own speech to God. And so the partner of meditation is prayer. But let's move on to now the the problem with meditation. Can we talk about this a little bit? So back in the text, I just want to highlight again what it says back in verse 2. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or seats in the seat of scoffer, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. Their delight is in the law of God. Now, it's one thing for me to get up and talk to you about how you ought to delight and enjoy the scriptures as much as you enjoy a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie with a scoop of ice cream on top. Oh, yeah. And you just indulge in that thing. You're like, that is my experience of reading the Bible. I sit down with the Bible and it's like just indulging. It's so joyful. So you think that, that is a totally foreign experience to me. See, for some of us, the Bible actually creates more problems and is more, it creates more of a discord within our soul than a delight and a joy. In fact, I I would just want to ask you how do you feel about the Bible? (laughs) I imagine there are some of you that just don't like it, or maybe you've read it. And maybe you even read it daily, but you just, you don't really like it. Sure, there are some different verses in the Bible that you enjoy, but but you, you, you read it because you feel like you should. You certainly are not delighting in it like you delight in a scoop of ice cream. Now, why is that? Well, at least it's because the Bible is difficult to understand, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there are some Proverbs that are straightforward and simple and some Psalms that are beautiful and narratives that are obvious and compelling, but outside of some of our favorite verses, it's, a lot of it's just difficult to understand. And some of it is downright troubling and disturbing. I mean, just a few pages in and you find yourself in a very old garden with not one but two magical trees and a talking snake. And you think, what is going on here? And then a few chapters later in Genesis 9, after a global flood, which is hard enough to understand, after this flood, there is a righteous man, Noah, and he's drunk and passed out naked in his tent. And his son, Ham, comes in and sees his father in all of his glory, and he goes out and tells his brother about it. And then when drunk Noah sobers up, he does what every good father would do. He curses his son and all of his future descendants. And to be quite frank, Genesis is one of the more straightforward books. You know, Exodus is similar. But then you get to Leviticus and you're learning about wall fungus and skin disease and avoiding shellfish and how to arrange the body parts of an animal on a religious altar. And you think, this is just not that delightful to me. And you think, what is up with the Bible? I mean, the Bible is hard to read. But but let's just be clear there's a few very obvious reasons why that's the case. First, the Bible is hard to read because the Bible is very old. It's an ancient text written to an ancient audience. It's written to pre-modern Israelites, not post-modern Americans. I mean, the latest texts that we have are about two thousand years old. The earliest ones are well over three thousand years old, and it's and it's written in a different culture, in a different time, in a different language. I remember when I was in seminary studying Hebrew, the thing that was most difficult about Hebrew it was that the language looked so foreign. It was so strange looking, and you read it from from left to right rather than in that's just indicative of the entire cultural setting. It's so different. But listen, when you go into a foreign culture, what do you need to do? One posture is you could be an arrogant American who thinks that we have everything right over here, and we go over there, and you just kind of, like a bull in a china shop, want to dictate to everyone the right way to be done. But that's, that's arrogance, Instead, what you need to do is you need to enter with patience and with humility and seek to learn from that foreign culture. And the same posture is important with the Bible. Rather than going and judging what you're reading by your own American privileged power hungry standards or whatever, like you go there with humility and you say, what, is, what might this foreign word say to us? I mean, it's not like we as Americans couldn't use a voice from outside of our own enclosed culture, or you couldn't use a voice from outside of your life to break in that says something that's unexpected. And so the Bible is old, it's ancient, it's foreign, and so it's difficult to read. But it's not just old and foreign. That makes it difficult. But also the Bible is good art. You know, there's bad art. There is the predictable show that the first five minutes into it, you already know how it's going to end. And quite frankly, a lot of stuff that's produced within the evangelical subculture is just not good art. It's sanitized. It's produced for a certain kind of audience. But the Bible, strangely, is not like that at all. The Bible doesn't end, None of the stories end the way you want it to. None of it has a nice bow at the end. It's always disturbing you and surprising you, and you think, this is so strange, And that's because it is doing what good art does. You see, the Bible is a collection of literature. It's a collection of writings. Some of it is historical narrative. Others are ethical norms and laws. Uh, Still others are epistles or letters. Uh, There's biography. There's all different, there's apocalyptic and poetry and all kinds of different genres. And what ties it all together is it's brilliant and it's complex and there's depth. It's interesting, even in Psalm 1, there's little nuggets that unless you kind of get into the the weeds, you don't start to see it. The first word of Psalm 1, it begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And then uh, the, the last letter of the last word of the Psalm begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, as if to form this little chiastic structure to say, I'm giving you from beginning to end what makes for a rich life. And it's interesting because the psalm begins with a statement of blessing, and then the other psalm, Psalm 2, ends with a statement of blessing, and it ties the two psalms together as an introduction to the five books in the psalms. Now, that's just a little observation. You could drive deeper into the text, and you start to realize this text, it, it is It's is nuanced. And there's beauty and there's depth, but it takes time. You know, good literature, like good art or good movie performances, or or they don't give up all of their secrets the first time around. So why would you think that you got everything there is to find because your first read of this foreign, strange, other text where we find the revelation of God, you just didn't get it your first read. You know, there's depth. There's a reason why this is the most read book and the most translated book, the most influential collection of writings in the history of the world. It's because there is some power and there's depth and there's beauty here, but it doesn't give up all of its secrets the first time around. I remember uh, when I was moving from uh, Long Beach out to Albuquerque uh, to go take a pastorate out there, there was a guy in our church who was a hip-hop artist. He used to tour over Asia and, and uh, perform. And he came up and he said, uh, Pastor Josh, you know, if I could be so bold as to give you a, drop a little suggestion for you as, you as you move off to Albuquerque. I was taking my first pastorate. I'm like, come on, bring, give, me some, give me some wisdom. He says, don't give them all your stuff the first few months. Keep a little back and always bring stuff, new, new stuff out to kind of surprise them with. I thought, I think that's what he did as a hip hop artist. And there's something to that in scripture. You don't just get everything. You need to keep going back. In other words... This text requires ongoing consideration and reading and rereading and thinking and consideration. It requires what the text says, meditation. It's meditation literature. You know, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor and I keep going back and rereading her short stories because there are these layers of meaning. There's this depth there. And the more I go into them, the more I discover there. And that is how scripture is. And so it's difficult, number one, because it's old and foreign, number two, because it's good art and no good art just gives away all of its secrets up front. It requires time and it's demanding. But thirdly, it's also difficult because the Bible has a surprise plot twist. So when you read through the Old Testament writings, you know, you have all of these different narratives and poetry and prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature and all this stuff, and it ends as a story waiting for a conclusion. It ends open-ended, and you're not really sure how it's gonna end. And the picture that you have of God earlier on in the text, and the stories about Israel and the promises, you're kind of left wondering, how is it all going to turn out? And then against everyone's expectations, as a complete surprise in the cosmos, Jesus of Nazareth comes on the scene as the climax of the story. And what they had expected was that God would bring his people Israel into the land that God had promised them by defeating all of their armies, all the armies of their enemies with a a great, you know, military coup and battle. And there would be this messiah. And Jesus comes in and rather than raising up a military army, instead he gives his life away and he's crucified by the foreign power that's oppressing them. And by this act of sacrificial self-giving love, he turns the cosmos upside down or right side up. He defeats darkness and evil and he begins to remake and restore creation. And once you get the surprise plot twist, you're like, I wasn't expecting that. You got to go back and reread the narrative in light of Jesus. Jesus becomes the interpretive window through which we read through the rest of scripture. You know, I don't know if you saw the movie Six Sense, but uh, if you didn't, I'm going to blow the whole movie for you. Um, it was back in 1999, so if you haven't seen it, you know, I mean, that's on you, not me. But the movie Six Sense has this. You think in the beginning of the movie, you know, you've got this uh, character that Bruce Willis plays, and then there's a little boy, and he's counseling this little boy because the little boy is uh, um, feels like he can talk with dead people. And um, so he's, and Bruce Willis is the therapist trying to uh, give, you have to just watch the whole movie. But anyway, rate, you get to the very end of the movie and you think you're watching one thing and you get to the end and all of a sudden there's this dramatic plot twist and you come back and you're like, I have to go back and watch the whole thing over again. And when you get to the Jesus part of the story of Scripture, the story, the true story of the world that climaxes in him, you got to go back and reread the story. And that takes work and discipline. You got to rethink and reinterpret. And so it takes time. And so, of course, yes, the Bible is difficult. I grant that. But it's difficult because it's old and because it's beautiful art and because it's got the surprising plot twist. But I will tell you this if you will dive down in the scripture and you will spend daily time in it and you will give yourself over to it, you won't simply just read to check off a box and to do your good Christian thing. You'll actually say, no, I want to understand this. I want to reflect on this. I want to see what this reveals to me about myself and about God and, and how this leads me into a deeper, you will discover riches. So that's something of the problem with meditation. So we've seen the practice We've seen the partner, it's prayer, we've seen the problem. But fourthly and finally, I want to now talk to you about the promise of meditation. So listen, you might be tempted because you think, man, when I read the Bible, I just don't get anything out of it, or I read it and I just, it's, I don't understand it, I don't like what I read, it's hard. I know some of you don't feel that way, and you were getting coffee at the last point, and that's fine. But for those of us who've experienced it that way, I just want to hold out to you what this text does, which is a promise, And here's what it says. The one who will discipline themselves to meditate and delight day by day in God's word. Listen to the promise. This person will be like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in due season. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, they will prosper. The wicked are not so but are like a chaff that the wind drives away. Here he draws upon metaphor in order to help us understand the outcome of two different kinds of life. And the first metaphor is of this vibrant, growing, fruitful, strong tree that's planted by a river. And he says, do you want your life like that? You want to be a somebody who is stable, who draws upon deep wells, who gives deep reflection to the meaning of life, to what life is about. You're self-aware. You have some sense of where, what the meaning of all of this is anyway. You want to be a person who, who, who people go to for wisdom over the long course of your life then what the psalmist is saying is give yourself over to meditating and to prayerful meditation, to delightful meditation, day and night meditation on God's word. And if you give yourself to that, the outcome of your life will be stability and strength and fruitfulness and character and wisdom. But if you don't, you will just be a lightweight. If you ignore a voice other than your own voices, if you ignore disciplines, then other, other than the things that come most easy to you, namely eating salty, fatty, sweet food and uh, playing video games and watching YouTube clips and movies and all the entertainment stuff that's so, if that's just what you give yourself to, it is going to result in a certain quality of life. You know, have you ever found yourself at a destination in your life and you wondered, how did I get here? You've got a marriage that's broken and it's not working and you think, how did I get here? I didn't choose to have a bad marriage. Or maybe you think about estranged relationships with your kids or with your parents and you wonder, how did I get here? I didn't choose this. Or you're overworked or you're stressed out or you're addicted and you feel in bondage and you think, how did I get here? Listen, you didn't get there by accident. What you are experiencing now is the outcome of a life of choices. And certain choices have taken you down a path. Certain disciplines and habits have resulted in this outcome. And what the psalmist says is, I want to invite you into a different way of life that results in a different outcome. But here's the thing. A tree doesn't grow overnight, does it? I mean, I think this is interesting, you know, um, uh, the thing about a tree it, it talks about the fruits that's developed on this tree uh, the fruit neither comes by striving so you never look out the window and see your orange tree just like working really hard going Bruh! you know Bruh! you know trying to get those oranges out you don't know no it just hangs in there and over time it draws upon the right resources and it's fruitful On the other hand, you don't plant a tree and come out the next day and find fruit. Now, if you thought that that's what the case was and somebody gave you a fruit tree and you planted it in your backyard and you came out the next day and there was nothing there, you'd be like, what? And and, and you call your friend and they say, no, 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 no. you got to wait. You've got to water that thing. You've got to care for that thing. And in about two years, it's actually going to finally bear fruit after you've pruned it and watered it and you've cared for it and all this stuff. And you think, Two years? And they're like, do you want fruit? You gotta wait. And this is the spiritual life. It takes time to cultivate and grow character. It takes time to actually break in and actually begin to find delight and greater understanding of Scripture. But you have to make choices, daily choices, to get engaged, to sit with God, to sit with the Bible, to reflect, to meditate, to break away from the default mode of our culture, which is just to entertain and consume yourself to death. You've got to choose a different way. You know, I was thinking that what this really requires is it requires trust. You have to trust that if you give yourself over to these disciplines and practices, there is fruit on the long end of it. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, this is always the way in the movies. You know, one of my favorite movies from the 80s, it was one of your favorite movies if you were a child of the 80s, The Karate Kid, right? Right? And do you remember there was the sage, Mr. Miyagi, and he took under his belt young Danielson, you know, and he was going to teach him, you know, uh, how to to be a karate master or whatever, you know. And he goes to him and he he says, teach me, Mr. Miyagi. And the first thing he does, what? Mr. Miyagi sends him out to start waxing all of his old cars. And he tells him exactly how to do it. Wax on, wax off. And then he, he, after he's done with that, he takes him out to his fences and he says, I want you to stand on, and then I want you to paint the fences. And here's how I want you to do it. Paint on, you know, like this, you know. And, and Daniel's son has given himself over to this and for weeks, and he's just like, what? Why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense. I'm not getting anything out of it. And then you remember there's a scene where Mr. Miyagi comes up and he says, uh, you know, hit me, you know. And so Daniel goes after him and he goes, wax on, you know, and he, takes the wax off, and then he says, you know, paint up, you know, And and it turned out that there was actually an outcome for all of the hard discipline, but it didn't come until after the long, trusting obedience of himself to Mr. Miyagi. And this is how it is with us. When we entrust ourselves to the way of Jesus and we say, Jesus, the master, our teacher, he has modeled this way of life of meditating reflectively and deeply on the scriptures and responding to his father in prayers. He says, look, this is the way into the deeper spiritual life. It's through scripture, meditation, through responsive prayer. Give yourself over to this day by day by day and you will begin to become a person of depth, a person of substance, a person of stability. When the troubles and trials of life, when the winds of life blow, you can hang in there. It's not that they don't affect you, but it's that they don't break you because you have, you've drilled down deep your roots into the very life of God. And you've tapped into that through these practices. Now, Justin mentioned at the beginning of our service that we're gonna end our time together by sharing in the Lord's Supper. And so at this time, I wanna invite our band up and I just wanna set up the Lord's Supper by by sharing with you the very last verse in Psalm 1. So, you know, in some ways, I've talked a lot about your responsibility. You need to give yourself to meditation and reflection and responding to God in prayer. And it's out of that that your own life grows deep and you've gotta make good choices and you've gotta pursue God and, and this sort of thing. But the Psalm ends us with this word that although we are called to meditate and to give ourselves over to the scriptures like this, not everything depends on you. It says this in Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish It's interesting, it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And that word knows, it's the same word in Hebrew that's used to describe a husband knowing his wife intimately, vulnerably, sexually. It's this this deep and intimate and close and caring and loving knowledge. And what he's saying is that before we ever begin our pursuit of God, Before we seek to know God through his word, God set his own loving knowledge upon us. He knew you deep down and he loves you all the way down. We love him because he first loved us. Our great God and father, we come to you as our creator You are the author of our life. You are the author of all of the brilliance and the beauty of this created world that we receive day by day as gift and gift and grace. And even when we had turned away from your loving, gracious gifts toward us in rebellion and we plunged creation into brokenness and darkness, In your compassion and in your love, you did not leave us there, but you pursued us. And you came after us in Christ and you entered into this world and you went all the way to the point of death on a cross so that you might break the power of sin and darkness over us through Christ. We give you thanks, O God, that you have given your life fully and unreservedly for us. And we turn now to this practice that your son Jesus has given to us to nourish us and sustain us. Strengthen us, we pray. Remind us that we are loved. Nourish us for the week ahead, our God. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.